Radio Hazar has the great pleasure to chat to intellectual heavyweight John Derbyshire about his excellent book, We Are Doomed, Reclaiming Conservative Pessimism. John was born in England, but is now an American citizen. He studied mathematics, worked as a computer programmer. He is a writer, novelist, pop math author, reviewer, and opinion journalist. John is a writer for the must-read website, VDARE. VDARE addresses the IQ, that is the immigration question. Mr. Derbyshire produces one of the finest political podcasts on the internet. A Saturday is just wrong, misspent, without a fix of Radio Derb. John, welcome to Radio Hazar. Thank you very much, Brian, and thank you for the kind words. Excellent. Could you tell us what moved you in the first place to actually pen We Are Doomed? Um, <laughs> I've, I've got to admit, um, uh, you know, uh, um, a famous uh, songwriter was once asked which comes first, the words or the music? And he said, what comes first is the phone call from my agent. <laughs> and uh, it was rather like that. Somebody, who I'd better leave nameless, suggested that I write a book about conservatism from a pessimistic point of view. I said, yes, I'm up for... Well, I think what I actually said was, how much and when do you want it? Uh, which is what writers usually say when you suggest they write something. And they named a sum of money and a date, and I said, all right, I'm up for it. And then the book emerged. And uh, what about your actual disposition? Uh, I find myself, I'm quite a cheerful person, but I'm quite naturally pessimistic. Um, what about yourself? Are, are you generally a pessimist? Uh, well, um, as regards the state of the world, uh, yes, I would describe my attitude more precisely as one of calm despair. Uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't lose sleep at night over the state of the world, that's the calm part, but I don't think we're headed in a happy direction, that's the despair part. In personal matters, and uh, so far as uh, my, my actual life is concerned, I'm really quite a cheerful fellow. But that comes from an acceptance of what I see as inevitable facts about the world. Starting, of course, with our own mortality. Yes. Did you read Schopenhauer's Studies in Pessimism? Uh, if I did, I don't remember having done so. But I'm acquainted with Schopenhauer's thinking in outline. Okay, great. Uh, so we Are Doomed was published in 2009. I'm assuming you were a lone voice in the wilderness crying out for uh, pessimism. And have people received the book uh, positively or? Well, I don't know that I was such a lone voice. In 2009, um, we, uh, conservatism in the United States had suffered a considerable defeat with the election of Barack Obama. Uh, so I think, uh, I, I hoped at the time, it struck a chord with a lot of people. Uh, to judge from the sales numbers, it didn't strike that much of a chord with a whole lot of people. But uh, you know, I, I didn't think I was really going against the spirit of the times. Um, but my, my thesis remained true that 
American conservatives, perhaps conservatives at large, have been too optimistic about the prospects for civilization. And what about translations? Has your work been translated into other languages? If it has, the publisher hasn't told me. I, I have had other books translated. One of my, one of my previous books has been translated into more than twenty languages, uh, including I just found out Portuguese, and um, a Japanese, Korean, and two different Chinese versions. One, one in Taiwan, and one in the mainland. But this one, no, I don't think so. But you can't really depend on publishers to tell you this kind of thing necessarily. My previous publisher, which was quite a different publisher, was very diligent about sending me translations. In fact, here in 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 the attic behind my study, I have big piles of, um, of Polish and Korean and Czech translations of my math books. But I don't have any translations of this one. But that just might be a vagary of the publisher. I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay, great. So,、uh, John, can you get your sledgehammer out and?、Uh... Could you put that to the optimistic, conservative, and liberal positions on the anvil?、Uh, could you start with a, a call to pessimism? Yes, I think a, a measured pessimism is is right and proper for people who are of a conservative disposition. That is to say, people who wish to conserve what is good, what is best about our civilization and our culture. If you want to conserve what is good about our civilization, you have to face the fact that you're fighting mighty opposing forces, and you're going to lose a lot. Whether you lose the last battle, I wouldn't venture to say, but you're going to, certainly going to lose some of them, and we have been pretty steadily losing them for some decades now. So a, a measured pessimism is appropriate.、Um, uh, of, of, A facile, a facile optimism about the prospects isn't going to help to push our cause forward. Yes,、uh, I know some people have mentioned the the thought that conservatives haven't really conserved anything. And、uh, I lived in the UK for a, a while, and to me, the Conservative Party there they haven't conserved anything. They're not even a conservative party. That's certainly true. I I don't follow the news from the old country. I live in America. I'm an American.、Uh, I don't follow the news from Britain as well as I should. But certainly,、um, in things that seem to me very important for the preservation of our culture and our civilization, the Conservative Party has been no help at all.、Uh, most especially, you mentioned that I. My writings and my podcasts can be found on vdare.com, the website vdare, v-d-a-r-e.com. We are primarily the primary focus of vdare is issues of immigration and what we call the national question. The national question: Who are we? Who? What is America? Who are we, Americans? That's the national question. And in that regard,、uh, if you translate the concern over to Britain. Uh, the great calamity in in recent decades in Britain was the huge surge in immigration、uh, following the Labour Party victory and the elections of 1997. 
when the Conservatives finally came back to power, uh, they did nothing to reverse that. And in fact, immigration has been steaming ahead at half a million a year. Depends whether you mean just the inflow or the net of the inflow and the outflow. The net of the inflow and the outflow is about half that because um, native British people are fleeing Britain, as I did. Um, but uh, even today, after many, many promises by David Cameron, Conservative Party, and Theresa May, Conservative Party, after many sworn promises, we'll do something about this, they haven't done a darn thing. So uh, certainly pessimism is appropriate there. On the next chapter, you have diversity, nothing to celebrate, and you point out Robert Putnam's uh, studies. And could you discuss um, this myth that diversity is a strength? Yes, um, it's, 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 it's really a, quite a preposterous myth. If you pick up a newspaper, uh, assuming you can still find one on, on, on printed paper, or, or, or browse the uh, news sites on the internet, diversity is causing problems all over. Everywhere in the world, diversity causes problems. And uh, to say that diversity is a strength is, is absolutely absurd. It's not a strength at all. Um, has, has, has Britain been stronger since it imported several million people from completely different cultures with different religions? Has it been stronger than it was before? No, I remember what it was before. I grew up in the old England, when England was monoracial and monocultural, and it was strong in important ways. It wasn't, I grew up in the 1950s, 1960s, it wasn't economically uh, as strong as it had been. It wasn't the, the superpower that it had been in the 19th century. But there was a feeling of belonging to a nation. There was a feeling of togetherness, of, of, of comradeship. And even those, even those of our fellow citizens that we disagreed with, and even people like the Irish, who we had serious historical disagreements with, we knew how to deal with. And there were problems there that reasonable people could solve. Uh, now, with the mass diversity all over the Western world now, in Europe, although not so much in Eastern Europe, but in France, Germany, Italy, Spain now, um, there are problems that nobody really knows how to solve. Nobody really knows how to solve the problem that if you import a lot of people from an alien culture, they're going to congregate in certain areas and form concentrations and shut out the majority culture. Uh, and without totalitarian level controls on movement and residence and, and, and births and so on, without totalitarian level controls, you can't do anything about that. So you can either accept the dire consequences or you can throw liberty out of the window. I would rather we preserved our ancient liberties. Uh, you, you mentioned Dr. Putnam. I, I should, I should, I'm sorry, Professor Putnam. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with his studies, he, in the early 2000s, he, uh, he did some studies, very extensive studies with tens of thousands of participants. Um, he's a sociologist and um, 
he did some studies of different American populations in different cities and regions of America to find out how cultural and racial diversity had affected those places. And the result was that it had affected them very negatively. He found out, for example, that people trusted each other less in more diverse places. And not only they, they trusted the other people, they not only they trusted people outside their own cultural groups, they even trusted each other less, other people inside their cultural groups. The, the effects were almost entirely negative. And, and Putnam, to his great credit, Putnam is a social liberal. He's, uh, uh, he, he, he very much wanted to believe that diversity was a jolly good thing. But he's an honest scholar, and the results that he got were staring him in the face. And for some years, I think for six years, he hesitated to publish them because they went so much against his own his own desires and preconceptions. But he did eventually publish them in a Swedish journal, and, uh, and they now stand there as a refutation of the idea that diversity is a strength. It's not a strength, it's a, it's a divisive force. It sets us against each other. It creates enclaves of, of people who don't like the surrounding culture. It's just a big negative everywhere. And as a, if you want a test case, it's quite a good thing to look at places that are not diverse. I was just reading something on one of the news websites about Japan, which is not the least bit diverse. And they keep it non-diverse. And they have very low rates of crime. The cities are spotlessly clean. Everything works, you know. Why, why aren't they embracing the blessings of diversity? <laughs> well, because they're smarter than we are, that's why. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, I think... England looks to be a goner. England does seem to be doomed. Uh, what about the rate of change in America? Um, is it reversible or um, is America doomed as well? Uh, I, I think my guess is it's reversible, but we need to do something immediately. And there's a weakening sense among American people, among American voters, there's a, an awakening sense that we must do something pretty soon, especially about immigration. Uh, that was one reason that Donald Trump got elected in 2016. Uh, he was in all sorts of ways not a very attractive candidate. He's, he's rather clumsy, he's a bit, a, a bit boorish, a bit of an oaf, and Time and again, you'd see people being interviewed on TV, and they would admit this. They would say, "Yeah, yeah, it's not not really a great candidate, but but he's right. He's right on immigration. He's right on the national question. We should control our borders." It's absolutely astonishing if you just sit back and think about it for a moment. It is astonishing that the American government does not know how many people live in the United States to the nearest 10 million. Wow. They don't know. Now, the art of counting up your population is a very old one. I mean, you know, the, the, um, the Chinese were doing it 2,000 years ago, uh, and all the European states were doing it by, uh, well, 1,000 years ago. Um, this is not, it's, as, as we say, it's not rocket science, but we, we can't do it, or rather we're not willing to do it. 
there was a report just recently by some scholars at Yale University just this week that they they had done some statistical studies and they calculated that the population of illegal aliens in the United States, that is foreigners who have no proper right to be here, may be twice as big as we previously thought. We wow. previously wow. thought it was 11 to 12 million. They think it might be in the range 20 to 22 million. So as I said, what does it say about a modern advanced country that put men on the moon and gave us, you know, the iPhone and all these technological wonders? We can't count our population even to the nearest 10 million? It's preposterous. So as I said, I think there is a growing awareness of this and a growing disgust with it amongst ordinary people. And I think that's one reason Donald Trump got elected. And I think that's why his support continues to be quite strong. Yes. Um, in South Africa, uh, I remember driving there and seeing road signs warning people that this is a, a hijacking hotspot. And uh, <laughs> when, when the state gets so bad that they can't even protect the citizens, but they have to warn them, you will get robbed here or hijacked here. Uh, I know... Mark Stein mentioned something similar in some areas in America where they've got signs uh, warning drivers that if they proceed along this road, uh, they're doing so at their own risk. And to me, it's shameful that uh, America has to put up signs like that. It's a massive decline, if that's yes. the state of affairs. Yes, and it's, um, it's politically hazardous because it sows the seeds of authoritarianism. At some point, people will put up that. People will put up with that for quite a long while, but sooner or later, it becomes too much for them. Sooner or later, the worm turns, and then they're looking for an authority figure. Then they're looking for a, a General Pinochet to come and put things right. And that's a thing to be dreaded, because authoritarianism never works out well. Yes. Um, and it's... And, and it would probably work out worse than usual in an Anglo-Saxon polity because Anglo-Saxons haven't really had authoritarianism for, well, since the Tudors, really. Um, so that's, that's really something to worry about. And people on the left, people on the political left who say, oh, you know, Trump is, Donald Trump is literally Hitler and he's authoritarian and so on. You, know, you, you haven't seen it yet. You haven't really thought through what this means. Yes. Uh, and you yourselves, by, by what you're promoting, by the social disorder that you're promoting and you're letting happen, by the open borders and, and Black Lives Matter, which is a movement against law enforcement, it's a movement against the police, all these anti, all these movements against order and against necessary authority, a state, a nation must have some authority to do what needs to be done, to arrest criminals, to police the borders. A state must have that kind of authority. And if you let that decay to the degree that we have, there's another kind of authority just coming up over the horizon, which is to be feared. Yes. Um, in Chapter 3, uh, it's politics, show business for the ugly. Uh, you discuss the growing size of the state and how uh, politicians are entrenched in their positions 
And instead of doing the honorable thing and retiring and getting a job uh, in the, the private sector, they just continue milking us for our taxes. Yes. Well, I don't know. I don't know how much you you folk have been watching the uh, the recent fuss in the United States about this new Supreme Court justice, um, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Yes. As 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 we speak right now, I think he's just addressing the Senate Judiciary Committee. And uh, one thing that struck me is the loudest voices in this discussion on both sides, actually, but most especially on the hostile side, the side that's trying to prevent him from becoming a Supreme Court judge, how many of them are really old? You know, Diane Feinstein, who we've been hearing a lot about, a, a senator, a United States senator, I think she's 85. And Maxine Waters, another uh, Congress person who's been very loud about this, is more than 80 years old. I mean, what on earth? You know, excuse me, I'm 73 years old, and I wouldn't want to be in any kind of position of responsibility 10 years from now. I don't really want to be in one right now. <laughs> you, you know, you, you feel your mind slows down, your judgment has lapses, you fall downstairs. You know, it's part of getting old. And these, 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 these crocs, these staggering uh, senile people are in charge of the mighty affairs of the nation. Let's have term limits. Let's have term limits on Congress people, please. That's, that's, a, one. that's a great idea, yes. Yes. And on Supreme Court justices, too, for that matter. Uh, yes. So, uh, and yes, our government is far too big, as I, as I said in my book. Uh, I, I, I chronicle some of the, the growth of government. I forget the numbers, but I, I do remember I had been reading a book about the 1920s, about the... Uh, Calvin Coolidge administration, when he was vice president, he had just a handful of people helping him to be vice president. Now, the vice president's wife has a staff. <laughs> I don't know how many people are on that staff, but what? <laughs> and of course, the vice president himself has a staff of, I'm sure it's dozens, quite possibly hundreds. Uh, it's completely out of control. Yeah. Okay. The fourth chapter is culture pooped out, and you describe the, the decline in high culture. Could you give us the state of American culture right now? A summary of it? Oh, oh that chapter was fun to write. I remember that. Yes, I, I started off with the Italian gentleman who created a work of art from his own excrement and put it into numbered cans and sealed them. What was his name? Can you, I, wait a minute, I've got the book here. I've got it here, Perio Manzoni. Manzoni, yes. And, uh, and sold them for thousands of dollars each. These are works of art. That was my starting point. And uh, I went on to argue that we are, as it were, pooped out culture-wise. And that I, I have really noticed in the 10 years since I was writing that book, I do believe I have noticed things getting even worse, even worse. I, I haven't kept much in touch with the world of high art, but uh, popular culture has certainly uh, slid down somewhat. Movies nowadays, and movies used to be like plays acted out on screen. It was like it was like watching a modern version of, of, of uh, William Shakespeare or Ben Jonson. Uh, and 
But now, movies now, the big box office movies, they're like comic strips. They're infantile. And uh, pop songs. You never hear anybody singing a pop song. You, uh, you know, I, 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 I can remember not, it wasn't that long ago, 20 or 30 years ago, if you had guys in to put a fence around your house or do some work like that, they'd be humming and whistling and singing popular tunes, popular songs. You never hear that now. Tell, write and tell me if you hear that. You never hear it. There, there, are, there is no common musical culture. There's no, nothing equivalent to the Broadway shows of the 1940s and 1950s where everybody in the Western world was humming the same tunes. There's nothing like that now. Yes. And I don't even know if there are any tunes. I, I listen, my son um, acts as my chauffeur. Uh, my car's out of commission. And he's been driving me around a lot. He's 22 years old, and he has the radio on in the car. And while I love my son, I cannot love his taste in music. <laughs> it's just it's really awful stuff. It's melody seems to have disappeared. There is no melody. There's nothing you could hum or sing. Nothing you'd want to learn. It's very sad. So yes, I think culture has gone downhill, and uh, books. Books are. Uh, disappearing certainly fiction um, the last the last work of fiction that I can remember you could always get a conversation going about in any any group of middle-class people office workers you could get a conversation going about was uh, bonfire of the vanities um, uh, Tom Wolfe's novel what mid 1980s 1985 I think that was and you could be sure if you were if you were stuck for a conversation topic at a party with people you didn't know very well, you could get something going on that. What is there a work of fiction that will do that for you nowadays at a party? I don't think so. Uh, you know, there might be on the off chance you might find a person at the party who's read one of the same novels that you've read, but that would be an oddity. There's no common no common culture binding us. And that again goes back to Professor Putnam. We just there's nothing much binding us anymore. We're not bound to each other anymore. What are we bound to? The world at large? That's not going to work. The yeah. world is too various, and too many of the people in the world want to come and live in our countries. It's not going to work. Uh, chapter five, sex surplus to requirements. Um, you, you discuss, for example, the feminization of boys and men. Yes. Yes, it's a woman's world, I say, or it soon will be. Um, that That's not an original observation. And, and in fact, there is an entire precinct of the Internet devoted to issues like that. Uh, what we call the manosphere. I don't know if you've heard this phrase, the manosphere yes. of uh, websites. Um, well, there's a spectrum of, of them. At, at one end of the spectrum, there are just strictly practical websites trying to teach young men how to navigate their way in, a, in, in, the, in the, the world we have now, where sex roles are in a constant state of flux. And at the other end, high high level speculations like the one in my book about 
um, whether masculinity even has a future anymore. Whether, as I think I, I said, I'm, I'm just quoting myself from memory, whether our, our we men, whether our paleolithic skill set is really relevant anymore. Um, well, we know it's not. We don't, the world doesn't need hunter-gatherers anymore. We don't need guys who can throw a spear and bring down a mammoth. Um, but men used to bring something else along as well, and, and that's, that's melting away. So maybe, possibly, who knows, uh, men are redundant. As I pointed out in the chapter, there are species of living things that reproduce without sex. Yes. Often very successfully. Some of them have been around for millions of years. So perhaps, we're, perhaps we are surplus to requirements. Yes. On a recent podcast, you did mention that a sperm count has been going down in the States. Yes. Yeah. So it may be connected. Um, I'm sure there'll be further insights into that. Whether, whether, it, it's certainly the case that um, fertility has been declining all over the civilized world. Uh, and and the, the most civilized parts of the world, just going back to my previous remarks about Japan, in East Asia, in Japan, South Korea, and China, so far as we know, Taiwan for sure, um, f fertility rates are very low. They're 1.3, 1.4 children per woman per reproductive lifetime, which obviously isn't enough to keep the human race replacing itself. Uh, well, meanwhile, you know, in the Central African Republic, they're having eight kids each. So that, that doesn't look good. Um, a statistic I've, I've quoted often, one of my reference books back here yes. is my, my grandfather's atlas and encyclopedia, uh, which I inherited from him through my father from 1922. And I can't quote you the exact numbers, but in 1922, it has, it has little summaries of all the nations of the world back then. Uh, and I, I, did, I looked up West Africa, what was then British West Africa, British West Africa, what is now uh, Nigeria plus Ghana plus Sierra Leone plus Gambia. But then it was British West Africa. And the population of British West Africa in 1922 was about a third the population of the British Isles. And that has completely flipped. Now, the population of those countries, what was British West Africa, is three times the population of the British Isles. It's completely flipped in a single human lifetime. Uh, you know, my father, my own father, I'm not, I'm not that old, and my own father was a working adult in 1922, so it's not that long ago. These tremendous demographic changes, which, of course, it's, it's considered very impolite to talk about them because most of the big numbers are in Africa and most of the small numbers are in places like Europe and East Asia. So it's, you know, you're, you're treading on eggshells when you talk about this stuff, but really somebody should be talking about it. It's, it's very important. And in fact, I, I see perhaps a positive sign, perhaps another sign of growing awareness. I see Bill Gates was recently talking about oh, it. Wow. How, yeah, how... Uh, the African population problem really needs addressing. He said it very carefully and very gently and put it in terms of, you know, we need, women need to be educated better and so on. Yeah. But at least, at least he's addressing the issue. 
Bless him. I think I'll stop using Google and start using, uh, what is it, Bing. <laughs> Let's hope he begins reading Steve Saylor or has read Steve Saylor. Perhaps he has. He, he kind of sounded like he had, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so uh, let's talk about education. Your chapter's Yale or Jail. And uh, you speak about the Kansas City project where uh, they tried to level out the achievement gap. Yes. Yes, that was back in the, oh dear, when was that? Back in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, uh, the Kansas City school system was very, very upset because the... Uh, the black students were performing so badly. So they just decided to go for the money solution and they, they spent a vast, uh, a vast amount of money to upgrade this school system. They had Olympic-sized swimming pools and, and translation labs and all kinds of things. And it didn't do a bit of good. The, uh, the black kids in Kansas City are just as far behind the other kids as ever. Uh, this touches on another topic that I, I talk and write about a lot, which gets me into trouble, and that is race realism, just acknowledging that the different human races are variations on the human species. And they're not just variations in the texture of their hair or the color of their skin, they're variations on broad statistical patterns of behavior, intelligence, and personality. Uh, it's quite well documented. Uh, people who study these things are not in much doubt about it, although they're still quite reluctant to talk about it. Um, but its effect on public policy, I mean, awareness of race realism in public policy making is still at absolute zero. You still cannot bring these up. You still cannot stand up in a city council meeting in the United States and say, well, you know, allocating, raising property taxes by 100% and allocating $2 billion to upgrade our schools is not going to bring black test scores in line with white scores. Might raise everybody's scores, but it's not going to affect the gap. Yes. But you, you, nobody could say that. If you said that, you'd never have a place in public life again. Yes, uh, in chapter seven, you discuss human nature and um, you discuss obviously uh, Christian creationism, religious creationism, but you also have the idea, are you still there? Test, test. Okay, I think we're back on. Yes. Okay, okay, we're back. I lost you for a moment there, yes, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry, yes, you were human nature. Yes, so um, you mentioned, and probably most people are aware of the religious aspect to creationism, God creating the world, but you also mentioned this leftist idea of creationism where um, like 50,000 years ago, uh, everyone magically stopped evolving and somehow everyone converged on the same point of development. Um, do you think that um, this idea will persist in the future? It will, it will put up a big rearguard action. I don't see how it can persist for very much longer because the human sciences are developing to the point where it's just not tenable. But you know, um, the world of public policy making, the world of politics and, and uh, the broad popular culture 
can resist scientific understanding for a very long time, much longer than you'd think. So I think we'll still be hearing this nonsense from politicians and from you know, TV comedians and so on uh, for many years, long after science has really nailed down these, these fundamentals of human nature. Um, I think um, human, human nature studies, uh, most especially in the areas of genetics, population genetics, uh, these GWAS studies that are being undertaken now, uh, I don't know if you know GWAS, genome-wide um, surveys of uh, really big populations, hundreds of thousands, uh, more than a million now in a couple of them, identifying patterns of genes that contribute to human behavior, human intelligence, and so on. Uh, they're racing ahead, and as... Charles Murray likes to say there's a locomotive coming down the tracks and uh, if, if you're in the way you will eventually get run over but politicians and pop culture figures will t take a long time to uh, to abandon beliefs in which they are so heavily committed yes. won't be easy yes. but I do think I do think as the, as the uh, as the Bible said I, I think that Truth is great and shall prevail. Okay. And uh, in Chapter 8, you discuss religion. What shall we do to be saved? Uh, basically, documenting the decline of Christianity in America and the problem with Islam, where uh, people are forced to engage with the, the, the idea of Islam. Mm. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm what's called a, um, a reluctant unbeliever. I'm, I'm not religious myself, um, but I, I think religion's kind of a good thing. Uh, I think Islam is even a good thing. I've never been anti-Islam, and I don't really, I, do, I, I, I shake my head in dismay when I see people like Robert Spencer um, uh, telling us what a wicked religion Islam is. Um, well, there are certainly some wicked people who are Muslims, but there are wicked people all over. What can you do? Um, I think religion has a valuable binding effect for human communities. I think it provides a lot of good moral guidance to people who otherwise would not have moral guidance. Uh, maybe I'm a snob here. You can accuse me of snobbery. I'm a, I'm a moral person, and I don't need the support of religion to be moral. Okay. Uh, I'd rather just phrase it as... Um, I'm an odd personality type. I think normal people, I don't count myself a normal person, I think normal people, in the generality, are happier, better off, better behaved, better socialized, if they have some religious support, if, if there are things they believe in, big things about the nature of human life and the nature of our relation to the rest of the universe. If there are those big things that everybody agrees on, and if there are prescribed uh, little, little rituals, little routines that we go through, even something just as small as saying grace before meals, which by the way I do, just because we started it when the kids were small and I don't want to drop it. Um, 
things like that help human beings to get through life. Um, Dr. Johnson said that the, the business of, of thinkers and writers and philosophers is to help us either to enjoy life or to endure it. <laughs> religion, yes. religion helps you to endure it because a lot of life is pretty shitty, you know. You know, people you love die and you get sick and wars break out. You know, there's a lot of negative stuff in life and you do need some spiritual fiber, I think, to see you through that. Yes. And uh, what about the, the natalist position of religion? For me, the, the most religious people are the ones who uh, produce most children. I, I, I'm pretty sure that there's a strong connection there. And uh, this is one of the reasons I, I'm not a religious person myself, but uh, I, I do like the traditions of Western civilization and Christianity is obviously part of that. But um, I think it's going to probably be the religious Westerners who are going to be procreating more than the atheist liberals. Yes. Um, uh, some, uh, some years ago, six or seven years ago, I think, I reviewed a book about that called Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth by Eric Kaufman, who's a, um, a professor of what? I don't know what he's a professor of at one of the London colleges. Eric Kaufman, K-A-U-F-M-A-N. Very good book, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? And uh, he, go he goes through the t statistics and looks at the various high procreating groups, people like Hasidic Jews and deeply religious Muslims and uh, Christ some Christian groups in America who have 10 kids each uh, and uh, does the arithmetic and comes to the conclusion, not to spoil the book for you if you're planning to read it, but he comes to the, to the conclusion that, yes, the religious probably shall inherit the earth. Wow. <laughs> but there are... But the, the math, the math needs, needs some careful work because in all these groups, uh, you get attrition. So, you know, um, for example, when I was a computer programmer, I, I worked with a fellow who had been raised in a family of intensely religious Hasidic Jews. And as soon as he attained maturity, he looked at the lifestyle that they were living and said, no, that's not for me and left. And people do, they boil off. Um, a certain proportion of the population of very religious groups boils off. But in many of those groups, it's only a small fraction that boils off. The Amish in America, there's a, a group of um, old Protestant Christians called the Amish. Uh, and they have a very low boil off rate. You hardly ever meet a person who says, oh yeah, I was raised in an Amish family. They, you're born Amish, you stay Amish. So, yeah, they probably will inherit the earth. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay, so chapter 9, you discuss war invading the world. Chapter 10, uh, immigration inviting the world. Um, can you go through the madness of America's foreign policy? Yes. That, by the way, that phrase, invade the world, invite the world, I'm pretty sure that's one of Steve Saylor's phrases. He's a great phrase maker. And uh, those those of your listeners who don't know Steve Saylor and his and his blog um, uh, should really get acquainted with it. He's very good like that. But uh, yeah, and Steve Steve has been arguing for many years, twenty years almost, 
that these are two sides of the same psychological coin, the same psychological tendency among our national leaders in America. On the one hand, invade the world, go out with your armies and try to make the rest of the world be like America. And on the other hand, invite the world. Go out into the rest of the world and say to them, look, if you want to come and live in America, by all means do. The borders are open. So this is the invade the world, invite the world strategy. Um, I think we have turned a corner on that. This week, President Trump made a speech to the United Nations where he quite explicitly refuted that, that whole strategy. He said, we're not we're not going to have any more missionary wars. We're not going to uh, try to turn Somalia into Kentucky. You know, we're not going to do that kind of thing anymore. Um, I hope I hope he's right because he he's there are people in his White House who are still of the old school who still want to invite the world and in, invade the world, and there are powerful people in the media who are still stuck in that groove. I hope he can prevail over them. But at least he said, we're not going to do this anymore. We are going we are going to secure our borders. We're not going to have any more missionary wars. Uh, talk is cheap. Maybe he won't be able to do anything, but at least he said it. Sure. Um, I've recently spoken to some Kurds, and obviously the situation in Poland, uh, b both uh, Kurdistan and Poland, they they rely heavily on the idea of uh, the U.S. military being able to help them, uh, to give them military aid. Like I, I don't think Kurdistan could become an independent state without uh, the help of uh, America's military. Um, uh, so when I ask them questions, I'm asking them from their perspective. But from the perspective of a tax-paying American, um, what benefit is there for Americans in uh, their military? being stationed in Central Europe and the Middle East. Is there anything? Uh, I don't myself think there is. I'd like to see the United States be what the founders intended it to be, a self-sufficient uh, commercial republic, uh, dealing with the rest of the world in friendly terms, but not trying to convert anyone to our way of thinking. I'd like to see that, but um, I'm I'm not sure. There there is a case. There is a case for the other thing. The case goes something like this: that uh, if you go back to the early 20th century, there were states then that were not particularly strong or influential. But they all had a certain attitude, and the attitude was hostile to the old imperial powers. So you had Italy, Japan, Germany, and somehow, somehow in the 1930s, they all came together as a single axis, and they found some common interest. And now, this, this argument goes, now you have something similar with Russia, China, and Iran, big, populous nations, not much in common, not really he obviously headed in the same direction, 
but with the potential there for an axis of authoritarianism, just as we had before, and somebody needs to stand against that. That's the argument. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical on a number of grounds, um, demographic grounds, for example. All those countries, Russia, China, and Iran, have quite serious demographic problems. The cliche about China, it's, it's, it's true, like all cliches, it's true, China is getting old before it gets rich. They have a very low fertility. Um, they, they've, they, they scrapped the one-child program. They've now switched to a two-child program. The Chinese government is urging its citizens to have two children now. Um, but uh, from what I know of China, that's not going to be very successful, certainly not among the urban Chinese, where the young women now all want to have careers. They don't want to have children. Um, the one-child policy, the last couple of decades of the one-child policy, it wasn't really necessary. Nobody wanted to have more than one child. No, no urban Chinese wanted to. In the countryside, it was a different matter. But the countryside is disappearing. It's becoming more and more urban very fast. Uh, and likewise, Russia, likewise, Iran. Iran has a big population, a big demographic problem, um, somewhat less than the others because they, their, their fertility fell later than the, it fell in the other countries. But um, I don't see, I don't see these countries uniting in a worldwide conspiracy. So I think my own preferred vision of the United States quietly minding its own business, guarding its own borders, making sure it can defend itself if it has to, but not posting what we have now, what do we have, 28,000 troops in South Korea, why? South Korea is vastly richer and more populous than North Korea. Why can't they take care of their own affairs? And the same, no offense to Poland at all, but why can't Europeans defend themselves? There are half a billion people in Europe. Well, close, is it 450 million? Yeah, uh, over 500 million people in the European Union zone. Yes, yeah. and with, with, with pretty good thriving economies, at least in Northern Europe, Russia has, what, 110 million, 120 million? It's not, and, and their, their economy is junk. <laughs> They're not competitive. <laughs> you, can't, you can't protect yourselves. You, do you really need American troops protecting Lithuania? You know, yes. can't, Europe, can't Europeans step up to that? Yes. Well, the sad answer, of course, is they can't uh, because they've, they haven't got the nerve. They've lost the nerve. But should Americans care about that? Well, I think a lot of Americans, again, are going to come around to saying, well, if the Europeans won't defend their own continent, it's not up to us to defend them. Yes. Do you think this is a, a growing sentiment among taxpayers in America? Yes, I do. Great. Oh, yes, I, yes, yes. It's part of the general Trump phenomenon. Because Trump was saying this. He hasn't been saying it much as president. But on the campaign trail, he was saying this. He was saying things like, um, he, he certainly said at one point, you know, South Korea should nuke up. They should get nuclear weapons. If North Korea's got nuclear weapons, South Korea should get them too. And I was jumping up out of my seat and, and <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, yeah. He hasn't done much about that, but I think, I think his, his instincts are right. And if those are still his instincts, I hope they bear some fruit. Yes. I know he also, on the campaign trail, said that he would pull America out of NATO. And I was thinking this was a great opportunity for Europeans, Europeans actually to look at their own situation and reflect on like what they what they have to do, what they have to face 
for the future. Um, I, I was hoping that Trump was going to pull America out of uh, NATO, but th that hasn't materialized. Yes. Well, he we he should, when the Warsaw Pact disbanded um, a quarter of a century ago now, NATO should likewise have disbanded. And we should have reached over a hand of friendship to the Russians and said, you know, any help you need, we'll be glad to help you. But we're not, we're not two hostile military alliances anymore. Um, but unfortunately, we are still one hostile military alliance up against Russia. Why? Yes. Uh, Peter Hitchens keeps on pointing out how uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, they, they lost uh, thousands of miles of territory, whereas the European Union's borders have kept on expanding further and further eastwards. And um, th this makes the situation untenable for Russia itself as well. Yes, yes. And there are there are deep historical currents here, too, for for Russia. The history of Russia as an empire, uh, again, it's a cliche, but it's it's a true one, has been a, a, a tug, a, a psychic tug between the European and the Asiatic. Um, you remember, remember Stalin, Stalin um, dancing around the dance floor with the Japanese ambassador shouting out, we're all Asiatics here, we're all Asiatics here. <laughs> 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 it's always been that tension, you know, the uh, 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 the old the old the old Tatar dominions, the old dominions of the Mongols, became a European power, but it wasn't a wasn't a total transformation. Even now, to um, to an educated Westerner, to an educated European or American, even now, if you go into the depths of Russia. I'm not talking about the kind of people that you and I might meet, you know, university professors or politicians or something like that. But if you go into the depths of Russia, even European Russia, you don't have to go to Siberia. There's something, there's something not European there. There's something very non-European there. There's something of the old, the old Khanate, the old Mongolian regime that's still there, I think. You get it. You get it. I, I get it from Russian literature. I, I, I especially get it from Gogol. You read Gogol. These, you know, he's 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 a, he's an odd sort. I don't know if people still read him. But he's an odd sort of writer, <clears throat> and uh, and sometimes a very funny one. But you're reading him and, and you're shaking your head. And thinking, this, this is great, but these these are not my people. These are not Europeans. <laughs> yeah, I, unfortunately, I haven't. I'm not familiar with the author, so I'll have to check him out. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Dead Souls is his uh, his masterpiece as a novel. Okay. So um, for time's sake, I'm going to uh, skip onto some uh, Derbian ideas. Um, in the, in the light of how cultural Marxist ideology has come to dominate big tech, banking, media, university, and even the governments in in the U.S. Uh, I think the idea of an international movement aimed at breaking up the power of the left and opposing globalism is a very valid idea. Uh, I, in fact, I think it's long overdue. I know on w one of the Radio Durab episodes, you did mention the idea of an internationalist group, something like the Workers International, except maybe from a, a conservative perspective. Uh, how, how do you think this could be achieved? Is, is there anyone in the world actually trying to do this? 
Oh, yes, yes. I'm very encouraged. What, what I actually proposed, I actually, I, I raised the, the memory of what we used to call the Comintern, the Comintern, the Communist International. Uh, set up after the Russian Revolution, I think 1919 it began, of communists throughout Europe uh, holding meetings as best they could and pursuing joint programs, the common term. And I said, and, and, and the anthem of the common term was, of course, the international. You know, the international. I'm sure you do. Yeah. <laughs> And I said, what we need nowadays is a nat intern, a nationalist international. And the anthem of the nat intern should be the national. <laughs> See? <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to get somebody to write a tune for me, a stirring as the international, to make it the national. Uh, but yes, it, it's a paradox. Of course, it's a paradox. But nationalists uh, all over the Western world need to to get together the way communists did in the comment. They need to get together, put their heads together, develop common strategies, and that is happening. We see, we do see that happening now with um, Viktor Orban in Hungary and uh, and Matteo Salvini in Italy, and. Uh, I'm sorry, is it Kaczynski in Poland? Yes. And uh, um, what's the fellow's name in uh, in the Czech Republic? Um, I forget. But yes, the, these people have, have met with each other in a very friendly way and uh, spoken about their common concerns, mostly in, in today's environment, concerns about mass immigration from the third world into Europe, of course. But there are other concerns that nationalists should have. Uh, as, you, as you yourself just said, there are concerns, there are economic concerns, there are concerns about international banking, yes. about global corporations, about Facebook having two billion users, and who knows what they're doing with that huge database of user information that they've got. So there are, there are beyond, above and beyond the matters of mass immigration, there are matters of global concern that need a strong nationalist approach yes that's right and i and i think i think there's there's a growing awareness of that certainly in eastern europe there is sure and um, do you think this should be at the state level or do you think um, a group should like there should be an organization that just uh, works with different groups around the world who uh, promote promote uh, uh, law and order in their own countries uh, well, I, I think a nationalist approach to politics and to global affairs should, of course, include a strong commitment to order within each nation. Um, but that's a difficult thing to internationalize, and I don't, I'm not sure that I'd want it internationalized. There is a tension there. You don't want to impose any kind of law enforcement regime on other people's oh, countries. Absolutely, yes, absolutely um, not. Yeah, each each country. I mean, uh, you know, just taking religious considerations, for example, uh, certain things, um, maybe abortion, for example, in a in a very traditionalist Catholic country like Portugal, maybe they want that to be illegal. Well, okay, that's their business. I wouldn't force any other regime on them. Um, and 
international crime, crime that crosses international borders, needs attention from some kind of supranational agency. Um, not all crime is committed just neatly within national borders, as everybody knows. Uh, so the drug traffic and people smuggling, part of, the, part of the immigration equation is the smuggling of peoples across the Mediterranean. And so, yes, there needs to be some active cooperation. The NAT in turn, as I have called it, the NAT in turn, isn't just going to be a talking shop. It's not going to be just people meeting in hotel rooms and, and discussing theory. Um, there, are there are real practical issues that nationalists need to carefully develop an international approach to without losing sight of their own nation's particular interests. So it's not easy, but uh, I think we're heading there. I think we're, we're, we're finding our way slowly. Yes. Um, I, I'm very con uh, concerned about the uh, big tech and um, access onto the internet. I, I know, of course, uh, VDARE had um, their payment system stopped. Um, and yes. yeah, Jared Taylor, for example, getting kicked off uh, Twitter. Alex Jones, I, I'm not an Alex Jones fan, but uh, just getting deplatformed together in a coordinated attack. Uh, this is extremely worrying that the, that the left or the globalists uh, have this power that they can wield. Yes, it, it is. Uh, it's, it's a growing issue. We've only, I don't know how it is over there, we've only in, in the last few months been getting a lot of public commentary about this uh, in, our, in our news outlets and our, our TV talk programs. Now it's suddenly, in the last few months, it's quite a big topic of conversation. And um, um, Mark Zuckerberg has testified before Congress they tried to get the Google people to testify too, but they didn't show up. So there's a certain arrogance there. Oh, and the, and the, the Jack, um, Jack uh, what's his name? Uh, the Twitter boss. Yes, Jack, Jack Dorsey, Twitter. Uh, he testified before Congress. Uh, I, I, I actually watched that testament. I found him quite scary. Um, but perhaps that's just me. But yes, these are these are big issues and and Nobody, I haven't really heard much of an idea about how to deal with them. What do you do with these things? Do national governments break them up? Or do national governments just have national firewalls like China has? And, you know, keep it, keeping them out of their country? That's not actually a very effective way to go. It works to a degree in China because China has totalitarian control. And you can throw people in jail if they do things you don't like without any fuss about proper legal charges. But in a free country, I'm not sure how you could manage that. Even in China, people find a way around it. They use VPNs and uh, they find other ways to get at, at uh, websites that the government doesn't want them to get to. Uh, in a free country, it's, it's going to be 10 times more difficult than that. Um, so we could be in for a long running battle with these tech giants. Uh, I don't know how that will play out. And as I said, I haven't heard any very good ideas about how to get the battle started, how to how to form up our troops in that proper battle formation yet. I hope somebody comes up with something. Well, yeah, absolutely. Something needs to be done quite soon. Um, I Just every single day I connect to the Internet, I'm seeing people get shut down for simply expressing their ideas. 
Um, yes. You were speaking about the manosphere. There is some writer called Rouge. I've never read any of his stuff. But again, he had nine of his books on sale on Amazon, and Amazon just pulled his account. Uh, they, yes. It, it's, I, yes, go ahead. I remember that, yes. That was three or four weeks ago, wasn't it? Yes, I remember. Yes. I haven't, I haven't read any of his books either, but uh, it, from what I can remember, it was pretty harmless stuff. It's you know dating advice. Dating advice, right? yeah, pretty much. <laughs> maybe maybe he made some negative remarks about you know how cruel women can be or something like that. I don't know, but that's well within the bounds of acceptable discourse, surely. You don't have to agree with it, but it's not outrageous. Yes. Yes, it's uh, it's quite really quite shocking. And on Twitter, I I, I do browse Twitter sometimes, and. Uh, Time and again, you somebody somebody posts that uh, such and such a website has been shut down, uh, some for promoting some sort of conservative issue, and then they they have a link that says, "But this other website, which is promoting antifa or terrorism or something like that, has not been shut down." The trend is pretty clear. Um, these people are uh, leftist, cultural Marxist progressives. And they're shutting down people who disagree with that point of view. Yes. Yeah, so I definitely think we have much better arguments, but the problem is um, our scope for actually getting arguments out seems to be uh, diminishing. And uh, I don't think it's a certainty that in the future we'll be able to share our ideas or even be able to sell our books on um, these big platforms. Uh, I'm... Yes, I think I think you're right. I, uh... One possible future. There are many. There are many futures. One possible future is that we all become China, with uh, thousands of state lackeys just monitoring. Well, I don't think they'd be state lackeys, but what would be the difference actually? Thousands of of politically correct monitors just shutting down everything on the internet that that they disagree with, that their bosses disagree with. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be enforced by totalitarian authority. It could just happen um, by uh, corporate malfeasance. Yeah, it really could. Okay. Um, so I have met many libertarians in the last three months, and I share many similar beliefs to them. For example, on free speech, the right to free association, the right to bear arms, less government. However, uh, a constant theme that I find among libertarians is that is that they're so wrong on the immigration issue. Uh, before you have described your idea of libertarianism in one country, um, could you tell us uh, about that idea? Yes, it's a, it's a simple idea, not, not original with me, that maximum liberty in, in a country goes with maximum control of who's in that country, maximum control over your borders. Uh, as you tighten down border control, you can loosen up internal freedoms. This current campaign in the United States against ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is the, the police force policing internal immigration violations, people living in the country who shouldn't be living here. Um, this kind of law enforcement, ICE, uh, has become a... Um, it's become a big project of the cultural Marxist left 
to shut it down. Abolish ICE is now a very popular slogan on, on, on the left. Um, that kind of issue shouldn't arise in, in an ideal nation. There wouldn't be anybody living in the nation who shouldn't be there. So you wouldn't need ICE. Uh, because you have maximum control over the borders. That's probably for a, a big nation with a long with long borders and a big coastline. That's probably too much to expect. But certainly we could use a lot less interior enforcement than we have if we controlled immigration properly. I was just I was just reading something on the uh, customs and um, I'm sorry, the Center for Immigration Studies, cis.org. They do some very good work. I was just reading a story on there about a guy from El Salvador who had murdered some homeless people uh, and he had been arrested for various crimes in the United States all the way back to the 1980s and he'd been arrested, he'd done jail time, he'd been expelled, he'd come back, he'd done more crimes, he'd been arrested again, he'd been expelled again. I forget the exact number, six or seven times, it's on CIS.org. That's, that's astonishing. And again, just as I said half an hour ago, it, amazing as it is that the United States government doesn't know how many people live here, some of the people it doesn't know about are people like that who really shouldn't be on the, on the loose anywhere. Um, so if, if, you, if you properly controlled who's coming in, who gets to stay, and monitoring people as they enter and exit the country, properly guard your borders, um, then you can have more liberty within the country. You don't need so many police forces. You don't need ICE. You, could, you actually could abolish ICE, perhaps. Perhaps local police could take care of it, of the few issues that remained. There would always be a few. But um, yes, maximum liberty within the country, to my way of thinking, goes with maximum control of who is in the country. Yes, that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, so I have two questions from expats in Poland. Both of them are vicious Radio Derb fans. They would probably take a bullet for you. Uh, the first oh. one is, I haven't asked them, but they probably would. Uh, the first one is from Ian. His question is, you always say the left-right divide we think they are wrong, they think we are evil. Have recent events cons convinced you otherwise? I'm thinking of the New York Times defense of hiring Sarah Jong, and in particular of the leftist shenanigans over the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh. Does their behavior make you suspect that leftists are fundamentally evil? <laughs> uh, short answer, no. Uh... I, I don't think they're individually evil, or rather I think they're only evil in the degree that we're all a little bit evil. We all have bad thoughts, and uh, most of us, if we look back on our lives, have occasionally done bad things. Um, uh, but organizationally, the left organizationally is malign. I'm not going to say evil, I'm going to say malign. It has even when it has good intentions, which it always has, they always have justifications for what they do and for the causes they promote, even when it has those good intentions, its effects are malign. Its effects on society, on the future of our civilization are malign. 
So I'd prefer to phrase it like that. I would also say that I think the old, the distinction left and right is starting to sound a bit quaint. The old left-right divide between, um, well, really it was a divide between people who wanted government to have more power over people's lives and people who wanted government to have less power. Uh, that's starting to sound a bit quaint. We have issues now, like the one we just discussed about these big tech companies, which impinge directly on on human liberty, but which aren't really anything to do with the power of governments, not necessarily. Um, so I, I think the, the old left-right, and I've been watching uh, British politics uh, throughout my lifetime. When I was When I was a student 50 years ago, Left and right was pretty clear that the left was the Labour Party and they wanted the government to take over essential industrial functions. They wanted the government to redistribute wealth. They wanted all the things that the old left wanted. And the Tory party were the party of tradition and leaving things alone and according some respect to old institutions like the monarchy and the aristocracy. Uh, in British politics today, that's that's all pretty much irrelevant. Um, and, uh, government control of more or less everything is now taken for granted. And the old institutions um, are honoured much more in the breach than in the observance. So uh, left, left and right sounds a bit quaint now. We need something else. We need, we need a better marker. Okay, great. And this is a second question from John. Uh, he asks, we always hear that business wants mass immigration for cheap labor, but isn't it possible that they benefit more from the boost in the numbers of customers that immigration delivers? Uh, yeah, I think I think it probably is. I don't know. I've, I have mixed a certain degree with senior corporate executives. I don't know that they think about this quite so clearly as that. I think there are, I think the immigration fanaticism that we see, uh, especially on the political left, is, is driven much more by cultural issues, by things like um, hatred of white people and hatred of especially white males than it is by cold commercial calculations. But to the degree there are commercial calculations, they're kind of immediate and on the ground. Big agriculture in the United States wants cheap labor. If you say, well, do they also want those people because they're going to be consumers of agricultural products? You'd probably get a blank look from, from the, the heads of agricultural combines. They, don't, they haven't really thought about that. They don't think that deeply, you know. Um, big corporations and, 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 and big lobbies like the agricultural lobby are not led by people who have PhDs in economics. Uh, the, the, their, their concerns are short-term and immediate. So um, I would say probably not. Um, but I wouldn't rule out that it might be a factor in some particular cases. Okay, great. Um, are you actually writing any books at the moment yourself? 
I'm sorry to say I'm not, no, and I'm, I'm very embarrassed. I met my literary agent at a, at a party the other day, and I, I, I was lurking around behind the desk trying to avoid his eye. Uh, no, I, I, um, I had a, a health crisis uh, six years ago, and uh, it, it, it drained me of a lot of my energy. And I really don't have the energy to write a book. Writing a book, if you, do, if you try to do it properly, it's a very strenuous business, you know, very strenuous. And I, I don't find it in me right now. I hope, I hope I'll get my energy back. I hope I will write more books. But no, I don't have anything right now. And also, I'm, I'm the kind of person, I've had publishers approach me and suggest books. I, I can't write a book to order. Um, some, somebody once asked uh, Vladimir Nabokov, the novelist, why he wrote a certain book. And he replied, I wrote it to get it off my chest. And I'm, I'm the same, I'm just the same. I understand that exactly. There's a book you want to get off your chest. You want to write it. And you, there's nothing for it, but you have to write it. And I'm not in that state right now. I don't have a book that I have to write. Uh, sorry, I hope something turns up. But at the moment, no. What about the John Derbyshire legacy? Are you going to set up a John Derbyshire society in the future to deal with... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry to say I have no, I, ha I don't have the kind of organizational skills that that would be needed for that. Um, uh, my legacy, I'm afraid, will have to be my uh, my books and my website, which is which by now is vast. If you look at the number of entries in um, under Radio Derb or under my monthly diaries, it's pages and pages and pages. Um, so I'm happy to leave that as my legacy. And my kids, of course, are always our best legacy. Someone asked Richard Nixon uh, when he was in retirement what he was most proud of, and he said, my children. I thought that was very touching and very human. Yes. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. Folks, if you've enjoyed this interview, go to John Derbyshire and donate some shekels to the great work that John does. Then, Thank you. <laughs> then go to VDARE, subscribe to the newsletter, and check out Radio Derb. You won't be disappointed. John, lastly, where can people buy your books? Uh, on Amazon. And but I sh I, I'll put in a plug here. Um, if you like to listen to audio books, I have just finished recording. Uh, you know, next year is the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square movement in China. And warming up for that, I have just finished an audio recording of my novel about Tiananmen Square, Fire from the Sun. And it's on my, the audio, the audio clips are on my website. You can find them there if you, you go to my website and look up books, Fire from the Sun. Um, so if you like listening if you want to listen to a really long novel, uh, there, there you are. Okay, great, John. Thank you so much. And yeah, so this is where we'll end it. Um, if you ever come to Poland, let us know. Um, there's three men in Krakow who would love to meet you. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, I know exactly one word of Polish, so I will utter it now. Dziękuję. <laughs>
Okay, uh, Dobranoc, which is good night. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Good night, Brian. Thank you, John.